And we're going to take opportunity in the Word of God, if, if, you will, uh, if you'll join with me. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And I'd like to pray as well as we uh, prepare to begin in our text. Heavenly Father, this is a good occasion. We're very grateful for the opportunity to uh, see our students graduating and progressing in their education. Uh, we know many of them are, are already serving you within the church body and uh, look forward to much more. And Lord, we want to see them grow, uh, not just in their abilities to know and understand and, and uh, learn various trades and head towards a variety of careers, possibly even ministry, Lord, uh, but we want to see them grow in their faith and in their walk with you, Lord. That's our greatest joy. So, Lord, uh, I pray that you would continue to encourage them in the faith. We're grateful for your word, which guides them, for your spirit, which moves them, Lord. And uh, we just want to celebrate you and your word this evening as uh, we continue our service. I pray, Lord, that you would allow me to uh, preach fervently and boldly according to your truth, that you would use this, Lord, for... Uh, the edification of your people. Lord, lift us up as a church body in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Romans chapter 6, and uh, we're going to try to cover verses 1 through 11 tonight, if uh, time allows. Would you stand with me as we read our text? I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. Graduations and uh, grad recognition night is always a reminder of all the hard work that students have put into their studies. Um, a lot of papers were written, a lot of tests were passed and failed probably along the way and passed as well, right? So uh, I wanted to tackle this text tonight, if I could, Romans 6, 1 through 11, because I see in it that the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to know some things. He wants us to know some things. Just like in our education, we come along the way learning and knowing some things and hopefully having understanding which leads to application, right? So students tonight, pop quiz. We're going to find out what you know. Just kidding. Just kidding. Was that scary? Were you claiming your graduation at that moment? I'm out. 
Well, looking at Romans chapter 6, it's an easy break in this epistle because the first five chapters Paul spends dealing with the matter of justification. This is being made, uh, sinners being made right before God through uh, the the work of Christ on the cross, his propitiatory uh, work on the cross. So the first five chapters uh, are Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, and he addresses Several things. He, he addresses the need for sinners to be saved, uh, for God's provision of a Savior, and the necessity and the exclusivity of faith in redemption. And so Paul attests to the truth of God's plan to justify sinners before him. Sinful man receiving salvation and a right standing before God the Father. But we have to pause, and especially as we get to this chapter... It's worth asking, is there more to salvation than just justification? Is being justified before God, set apart for eternity by the merits of Christ, the only primary natural effect of redemption? Or is there more? So Paul introduces chapter 6 with a particular question. I'm sorry, a false presumption. And he proves that an additional reality does exist beyond justification. And he begins his case here in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? He's suggesting that there's particular conclusions to draw from what has already been said in the previous five chapters. And this was his detailed presentation of justification. And he asks... Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, obviously, this is a rhetorical question. Paul has the answer to this. He knows the answer, but it gets us thinking. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? We are proponents of grace, aren't we? We, we celebrate the grace of God given to us through the, the substitutionary work uh, by Christ on the cross on our behalf. We celebrate that, don't we? We champion God's grace. So Paul responds to himself in the first five chapters of the epistle, which were focused on justification, and by saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? If you look at Romans chapter 5, you feel free to flip back. Romans chapter 5, looking at verses 20 and 21, we, we see here, that the law was given, it was provided with the intention of revealing the transgression of sin. Transgressions had already taken place. Sin was not a new thing. But the law was given to reveal that sins were being committed, that a great trespass or transgression was being made against God in each and every sin. And then consequently also the need for a Savior. We see this in Galatians 13, 19. So in Romans 5, 20 through 21, it says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Not that sin would increase, but the understanding that transgressions are taking place would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Galatians 3, 19 says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. 
having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So the understanding of sin was heightened. The, the revealing of the, um, the magnitude of transgressions was being more, made more clear. And the understanding of the need for a Savior was clarified. Recently, we had a staff meeting, and Pastor, we're always shepherded very well in our staff meetings. I'm greatly encouraged by that. We always start with time and, and God's Word. And recently, we got to talking about our sin. And we were thinking, you know, each of, of us, we ha- we're responsible for our own sins. And even in Christ, we know that there is still sin in our lives. And we were encouraged to think that we're not just transgressors. I think we would all agree tonight that we are transgressors of God's law, right? But we paused and thought about the sinfulness of our sin. The sinfulness of our sin. The the magnitude of our sin. The the great offense that it is before God. I think we would readily admit that we are transgressors of God's law. But do we pause to consider the sinfulness of our sin? That's a great reminder. And this brings us back to God's grace. The beauty of God's glory and justification is that we as sinners are met with unmerited favor, with God's grace, the grace given by our sovereign God, and Christ makes propitiation on our behalf. Again, is justification alone the ultimate goal of salvation? Have you thought about that? Is justification alone the ultimate goal of salvation? Well, the logic behind Paul's uh, proposed question may not be as absurd as we think it is at times. Again, the question is, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? We champion grace. Should we not just continue in sin so that the application of grace would simply be more abundant and more magnified and therefore God also glorified? Well, there's a good question. Is God not glorified by covering each and every sin of the elect, past, present, and future, through the blood of Christ. Of course he's glorified. Then if so, does this not warrant the continual pattern of sin for the sake of propitiatory application or the the exercise of grace on behalf of believers? It's an interesting question if salvation is about justification alone. So aside from the victory achieved in our eternal standing, this represents, however, no personal change for us. If salvation is all about justification, what about the here and now? Is there a practical or personal change in us? Or are we still just sinners? So it's important to pause and remember one very clear biblical doctrine in answering this question. Three words. God hates sin. Amen. God hates sin. We see this all throughout Scripture. Psalm 5.5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. In Zechariah 8.17, Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury. For all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. God hates sin. So, Paul responds to his own question. 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. God hates sin. So let's answer that question with a question. Should justification be used as license toward indifference to God's law? I say no. The the Apostle Paul says, may it never be. Of course not. So while the, the biblical perspective is evident, and the continuation of sinful ways is not glorifying to God, Paul goes on to address the objection from an experiential level, something that we can relate to. And he reminds believers of the impossibility of this presumptuous conclusion. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And he presents an incompatibility of being both dead and alive to a particular relationship. You can't can't be a Cleveland Browns fan and then put that to death when they lose year after year after year after year and yet become a fan when they finally one day soon win a Super Bowl. If you're dead to the Cleveland Browns, you can't be alive unto them when they win, right? Amen, fans? Right? Some of you get it too easy. Paul brings us to the incompatibility of being both dead and alive to a particular relationship. And he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul speaks, something to notice here, Paul speaks of sin in the singular. Did you notice that? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So it's not sins as in the plural. He's pointing to the believer's relationship to sin and the power of sin over one's life. This is an important thought. So how can we who have died to sin still live in it? So this is a thought of of influential power. Uh, And this thought of influential power is not foreign to the text itself. We see this later in the text that Paul speaks of another power. So Paul speaks of the influence of something later in verse 4. But a simple reading of verse 2 clearly shows that a relationship has been severed. It has been done away with. It has been cut away. So to live as if it still exists as before appears contrary to the intended purpose of the broken relationship. So there's purpose behind the broken relationship. So a change in the relationship between man and sin certainly affects the measure of influence that sin has over man. And therefore, also, its exercise and its practice. So students, part of your pop quiz... Paul appeals to the believer's understanding. So we see here several times in the text, Paul wants us to stop and think and to consider what we know. So he appeals to our understanding. And in verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Verse 3. So it should be noticed here that Paul considers knowledge to be a key factor, right? John MacArthur said, Scripture always identifies knowledge as the foundation of one's 
practice. We practice according to what we know. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Paul says, lie to, uh, Paul directs the church not to lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's a very powerful verse. He encourages his readers not to lie to one another. What is lying? It is a sin. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Understanding truth, understanding biblical truth, plays a key role in one's behavior. Believers, have you changed as you've come to know God's word and it has had influence on your heart and mind? Have you changed? Has your behavior changed? It, it should, right? Paul qualifies the all of us in verse 3 by saying that it's those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. So this, this may not specifically be a reference to water baptism. It's, it's probably more of a meta, metaphorical statement, but it also points to what water baptism illustrates through public testimony. And being baptized into Christ Jesus is to be made in union with him. Or like what we like to say around here, and even our, our t-shirts in the baptismal uh, pool say that we are identified with Christ. So this is a picture of Christ's redeeming work. The, the believer's previous identity, our previous identity before our relationship with Christ, was with Adam. Through whom, Romans 5.12 says, sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the early church father, Athanasius, called this the divine dilemma. Students, I bring this up a lot, right? It's an easy equation. He says, as Scripture does, that we're created in the image of God to reflect Him in His glory. Yet we've sinned against God. Being created in the image of God, adding our sinfulness towards God, equals our eternal punishment, eternal death. And this is a just punishment. So as in chapter 5, where Paul shows man's identity with Adam... Chapter 6 goes on to introduce the believer's identity with Christ by faith. The focus here in verses 2 and 3 is certainly identity in his death. Have you considered, believer, your identity in Christ's death? The emphasis is our union with, with our union in Christ. It means our union with him in his death. So the death that Christ died was substitutionary. He went to the cross. He bore our penalty of sin for the elect. And to be united by faith into his death, ready students, is to know that Christ died for your sins and has established victory over sin on your behalf. The victory that Christ secured marks a particular finality. In verse 4, he says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. 
later in the chapter, you're probably familiar with this, Paul states that the wages of sin is death in verse 23. So in Christ's death, the penalty of sin on account of believers has been what? Paid in full. It's been paid in full. It is done. As Christ said, it is finished. So in union with Christ in his death and in his burial, the old identity in Adam comes to an end. It is done. It is finished, Christ said. So God's righteous demands have been met through his son. This is substitutionary atonement, which justifies the elect before God. Believers, are these not truths to be treasured? This is a gift from God. Do we treasure these truths? This is the gospel. So by faith, his death and burial become ours. They become ours. We have union with him in his death. So from God's perspective, his, net, his elect are no longer numbered among the fallen, but instead are intimately known through the Son. That's a beautiful picture. Here's a good thought, ready? If the activity of the fallen was at enmity with God and participation with sin, having a, a new identity in Christ must have its effect. Can I say that again? Listen carefully. If the activity of the fallen, if our activity as sinners of the fallen was at enmity with God in participation with sin, then having a new identity in Christ must have its effect. Our participation with sin must begin to change. Here's a good thought. Ready? Jesus did not remain in the grave. He rose again. He was resurrected. Jesus did not remain in the grave. Death did not have a hold over Christ. So full union with Christ does not end with death and burial. Amen? There's more to salvation than simply justification. More beyond substitutionary atonement. There is purpose in this. So Paul introduces a comparison, likening the believer's situation to that of Christ as we receive a new identity in Him. So this brings us to another facet of salvation beyond justification. There is a significant purpose in our unity with Christ. So look at the rest of verse 4. There's a significant purpose in the believers being unified with Christ as described by Paul when he says this, so that, I love the so that's in Scripture, follow these, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see the unity there? The union with Christ? So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. There's a, there's a passive verb here that means was raised. So this wasn't actively on Christ's part. He was raised from the dead. It's a divine activity. It's from God the Father. So Jesus Christ submitted himself. Don't you love that theme in Scripture? That Christ humbled himself in becoming a man and accomplishing what we could not accomplish. He humbled himself. He submitted himself unto death and burial 
for the sake of sinners. And he was resurrected by the power or glory of the Father. So through union with Christ and his death, believers, we too are also recipients of God's glorious power. Amen? So that we too might walk in newness of life. The grave and our union with Christ cannot hold us. This is granted by God. It is accomplished in Christ. So, so why is it that Paul is making this comparison to Christ? It's, it's to highlight an inherited ability found in Christ. For us, walk refers to behavior or conduct of living. So, like mentioned before, if there's a change in identity, it should have its effect. A change in identity should mark a change in behavior. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. New things can now be expected of the believer. This is a new principle for living. And Paul reiterates this a little more specifically in verse 5. He says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So there's something interesting of note here. The phrase meaning united with, united with, it can more literally be translated as grown together. United with Christ. And not only in his death and in his burial, but also in his resurrection. United with, grown together, literally fused together as one. That's a beautiful picture for the believer, isn't it? So we know, that we know, students, we know that justification provides for our eternal life with him. Amen? We will one day be with him in heaven. We will stand rightly before God because of the righteousness of Christ. But just as our union with Christ into his death is not a physical thing on our part, neither should it be expected that the resurrection here in this text refers to our physical resurrection, at least according to that verse. So if our identity is in union with Christ's death, which is a spiritual reality, then being in the likeness of his resurrection must also point to a spiritual resurrection, being made alive unto God through Jesus Christ. So again, students, Paul points to knowledge. Do you know? He points to the significance of knowledge here in verse 6. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Believers have died to sin and been buried into his death, as we've seen in verses 2 and 3. So Paul's really good about this. He walks us through spiritual truths, and he gives us greater understanding through some specificity here. He says that our old self was crucified with him, the old nature was taken to the cross through the atonement made by Christ. Believers, are you glad that your old self was taken to the cross by Christ? MacArthur says that old here refers to something that is worn out, useless. Can any of us relate to that? Something that is worn out and useless. So why was the old nature crucified with Christ on the cross? We know that it was for the purpose of justification, to be able to stand rightly before God in the righteousness of Christ. 
And we, we talk about that when we consider initial sanctification, that we were in a moment set apart uh, through God's plan of redemption, right? So eternally, we are right before him in Christ. We are eternally set apart. But there's another purpose represented here in the second half of verse 6. The body of sin was to be done away with. So it begs the question, does the body of sin imply that the physical body is therefore inherently sinful? I think we have to be careful here. Okay? The spiritual heart is the source of sin, right? The spiritual heart is the source of sin. So this is likely pointing to an aspect of the flesh in unredeemed humanness. We recognize this, don't we? When we come to this text, we often think about walking in newness of life, but there's not that specific uh, uh, cutting-edge difference as far as we're sinful here and then never sinful again, right? Sin still follows us, doesn't it? But as we see in the text, sin does not have dominion over us. Christ is Lord, amen? There's a new power at work within us. So the spiritual heart is the source of sin. Tom Schreiner says that we are still jeopardized by evil desires. But through union with Christ's death, they are, we are enabled to have dominion over sin even now, with the result that we do not submit to its desires. It's to be done away with, rendered powerless. So the end of the verse explains that we no longer be slaves to sin. So in unity with Christ, there is a greater power that abides. Looking at verse 7, he declares, He who has died is freed from sin. Freed from the power and dominion of sin. So this union is intended to be a once and for all deal with the sin problem. A once and for all, let's deal with the sin problem. So we now have been freed from the power of sin and death because of Christ's accomplishment. But that's not just for eternity's sake. It's also for the here and now. So there's a contrasting of the old self and the new life. This bears a lot of significance. And, and pause to consider this. We're talking about being in unity with Christ, being identified in Him. So students... You're either identified in Adam or you're identified in Christ. There's no in-between. We are identified in Adam or we are identified in Christ. Paul prepares another very effective comparison here in the text. He says, uh, basically along lines, these lines, getting to these terms, if the believer's union in Christ's death is propitiatory, then one primary effect certainly is the hope founded on faith of a future bodily resurrection. We look forward to that day. Romans 6, 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's a great promise for the future, isn't it? We will live with him. But students, for a third time, Paul appeals to our knowledge. He appeals to the believer's knowledge by faith, knowing, knowing, in verse 9, unreserved or heartfelt confidence in the truth here. Faith is an application of the truths of the gospel, connecting one's relationship to them. Faith trusts. Look at verse 9. Having been raised from the dead, Christ is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. 
The grave has no hold on him, as Acts 2.24 tells us. He's never to die again. There are no claims to be made against Christ. It is done. It is finished. So upon Christ's own resurrection, death is not his master. In verse 10, For the death that he died, this is an accomplishment of tremendous finality. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. This is dealing with the sin problem. Since penalty is met, since power is overturned, death is not his master. But the life that he lives, I think this is the key to this entire text. The life that Christ lives, he lives to God. The life that he lives, he lives to God. So this is one of the most intriguing and powerful statements in this whole text. The the thought that the the life that Christ lives, he lives to God. So we think about Christ at at this point. We we look in Philippians 2 and, and discover the humility of Christ. And in that text, it leads to what he has accomplished on the cross on our behalf, leads to his exaltation, right? God exalts Christ. He's the name above every name, amen? So Jesus Christ is highly exalted in his glory. He's worthy of worship. And yet, he's intent to glorify God the Father in his sinless human nature. There's, there's pattern for us in that. He's exalted in his glory. He's worthy of worship. And his intent is to glorify God the Father in his sinless human nature. This must be the great end of our lives. To live for God in his glory, in the image of sinlessness, which is provided to us through Christ. We're to walk in that. We're to live in that. The great end of all life must be to glorify God. So then we get to another aspect in which Paul calls us to know something. So the newness of life addressed in verse 4 finds its particular definition in verse 11. This theme of knowledge is continued in a different way. We learn that the truths of the gospel are kinetic. Any science people out there? The truths of the gospel are kinetic. Kinetic. Basically, they're dependent upon activity. There's a response, an effect. Man's unity in the death of Christ has its effect for the here and now. Is salvation simply about justification? Or is there more? Man's unity in the death of Christ has its effect for the here and the now. So we see here in verse 11, even so, and this is Paul commanding with particular perspective on the will of God toward his elect. Even so, consider, think, know, apply knowledge. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus Christ is no longer under the dominion of death. The grave cannot hold him. Christians, believers, neither are we. Neither are we to continue in sin. Death is not our master. The grave does not hold us. Because of Christ, we are freed from the bondage of sin and death. A new life marked by freedom has begun, believer. We're no longer living under bondage. 
We're empowered to conduct our lives in a way that manifests these great truths of the gospel. And personal righteousness in Christ can be experienced in the here and the now. William MacDonald said this. He says, if we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, when we respond, we, sorry, we reckon ourselves dead to sin when we respond to temptation as a dead man would. I love that. I'm going to say that again. We reckon ourselves dead to sin when we respond to temptation as a dead man would. You have no hold over me. God hates sin and is intent to grow his people into Christ's likeness. God hates sin. And is there more to salvation beyond justification? It's to grow us. It's to grow us in Christ's likeness. It's to grow us and restore us into the image that we were created to be in, but even more specifically, in Christ's likeness. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is a strong text. We, we often champion our justification in Christ, as we should. But let that always be packaged with the intent of our justification, is that he's looking to make us new in Christ. We have an initial sanctification. We have much to look forward to in our future resurrection. But believer, we have much to walk in now in newness of life as we've been freed from the bondage of sin and death. And the, the Spirit is given to us to guide us and to show us the way of growth in Him that we'd be like His Son. What a beautiful picture that is. If in Christ, let this life be a walk in Christ's likeness. Students, graduates, if in Christ... If you are in Christ, let this life be a walk in Christ's likeness. What a beautiful picture for the days ahead. Student, if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, let that not just be to be right before God in eternity, but let it be a beautiful portrait of Christ in your life as you walk in the days ahead. Let you, his righteousness be shown in you as you're made more and more like him. I love Philippians 3.12. And students, if you're coming to the Bible study tomorrow, we'll continue with this thought. Ready? Paul says in Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already obtained it, or I've already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Beautiful picture of what he's making of us in him. Don't you love your Savior? Don't you love our sovereign God that sent his son, humbled, freely humbling himself, setting aside divine privilege to come on our behalf to accomplish what we could not accomplish according to God's law and his righteousness, but to die on a cross, a sinner's death, so that we might be one in him, made new in Christ, restored as image bearers to reflect his glory. What great joy is in that. Students, don't just look to salvation for your justification, but also for your growth and pattern in him to reflect Christ in his image. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these great gospel truths. There's much to be celebrated here. Thank you for the opportunity to share these truths this evening. 
Lord, I pray that as they resound upon my heart and mind, that your, uh, your gospel and uh, truths according to Scripture would also resonate in the hearts and, and minds of your people. Lord, even through this, save souls. Bring souls to you through faith in your word and in Christ alone. And Lord, I, I pray that even as we continue into Bible study tomorrow, that you would continue to renew your people unto you, that we would live for your glory alone. Thank you for your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.